Well, here at Brain Bubble Church, we seek to hold and guard a high view of God's Word. That includes a high view of God's Word preached and taught. In God's Word, the Bible, He's made Himself most known. And through His Word, we come to know God and His will for our lives. This is why the very first psalm describes the blessed man as, as who? The one whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. This is why the longest psalm, Psalm 119, spends 176 verses extolling the manifold majesty of Scripture. And so when we think about it, our aim is to be like that great scribe Ezra. Ezra 7.10 says of him, that Ezra set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach its statutes and ordinances in Israel. Before we tell others about God's word, even before we put it into practice, though we must, we need to study it. The very foundation of the Christian life and mission is studying and understanding God and his will through scripture. This has to be the starting point. That's what we aim to do when we gather as a local church and sit under his word. The church does not need simple moralistic lessons or, or story time. We need, first and foremost, Bible instruction, Bible study. We need to know and understand who God is, what he has said, that we might follow him, live rightly, and tell others. Of course, how we live deeply matters, but all things rest on a foundation of biblical instruction. That's why 2 Timothy 4.2 says, Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, rebuke, reprove, exhort with great patience and instruction. And with this in mind, this, this biblical instruction really is at the forefront in these Q&A sermons that we do. And from time to time, it really works out every couple of years, but we take a little break from our normal exposition through the word. And to answer some Bible questions you all have submitted, we have another one of those messages for this morning. And we do this because we need instruction. We need to know God's word. The Bible is a pretty big book. It covers many subjects. Sometimes it can be hard, challenging to study and find answers to your questions. Sometimes we need help. And so it's my goal to just be helpful, to provide some biblical answers to your questions, some biblical instruction in an edifying manner. We've already made it through several of your questions the past two weeks. Another round this morning, a few more up to bat for today. At least for me, I never make it through too many questions in a given Q&A sermon, partly because I'm, I'm long-winded. But I also tend to pick, in my mind, I gravitate towards some of the harder or the more challenging questions, ones that you'd have a harder time answering on your own. If there's a Bible question that can be answered in one or two sentences, I reason like I could just tell that person the answer pretty quick. But I prefer to use this time as an opportunity just to finally address some of the bigger questions you have that I think the church would benefit from more drawn-out answers. And that's certainly the case this morning and with our first question, which is not a small question. Uh, number one for this morning. Now, please explain the difference between dispensationalism and covenant theology. Please explain the difference between dispensationalism and, and covenant theology. So, it's not going to be that short, and there's not really a super short way for me to answer this. And with questions like these, it's no wonder we only make it through like a handful of questions in, in a given Q&A sermon. And this time around, there are actually two people who asked pretty much this exact same question. So can't get around it. We have to answer it. So let's see if we can give just a helpful introduction to these two theologies. Obviously, we, we can't be exhaustive, but let's see what we can do. Dispensationalism and covenantalism are... Two theological systems meant to understand and even interpret the scriptures. Now, when it comes to end times, people are very focused on the future. But it might surprise you that both of these systems, they're actually more focused on the past. Understanding the past. What is God's purpose for mankind throughout history? What is God's plan for us? How has it unfolded so far? See, when you understand God's plan in the past up through the present, it sets the trajectory for what you expect in the future, and that's where the whole end times thing comes in, but it really starts in the past. Dispensationalism and covenantalism are two different ways of synthesizing Scripture so as to understand 
God's plan in redemptive history, that the big picture plan, like what is God doing in all human history from beginning to end? That's what these two systems seek to put together. They really have the same starting point, just God in eternity past ordaining a plan of redemption. And they really have the same ending point, which is redeemed people of God, the glorified people of God, living in a new heavens and a new earth with the triune God, free from sin, Satan, and death forevermore. They also both teach that the only way you are going to be part of that glorious ending is by God's grace, working through your faith in Christ alone. These two systems find themselves united in the gospel and really like almost all other branches of theology fairly united, but they diverge in a big picture understanding of God's redemptive plan and just how that plan has unfolded throughout biblical history. And of course, that has implications for the future of the plan. And again, that's where you get into their differences on end times. But to understand these systems, you're really asking how do they understand God's plan? Let's start with covenantalism. It sees biblical history through the lens of covenant. Now, we're not talking about the biblical covenants like the Abrahamic, the Davidic, the New. No, rather, they see all of redemptive history as an outworking of three special covenants. Covenant of works, the covenant of grace, and the covenant of redemption. These three covenants are not explicitly mentioned in Scripture, but they believe they are well implied. And these three covenants then become really the grid for interpreting all of Scripture, which is why this system is called covenant theology. In short, just give you a little intro to it, it starts with this covenant of works, which God made with Adam in the garden. Adam was promised, this is a covenant, they think, Adam was promised eternal life for obedience to God's laws, while threatened with death for disobedience. After some probationary period of testing, if Adam obeyed, he would have gained eternal life. Now, we know that didn't happen, though. Adam failed to meet the stipulations of this covenant of works, and so he plunged himself and all humanity into a state of spiritual death. But God, though, in his compassion, sought to redeem fallen man who had broken the covenant of works. And so God, at that point, enacted a new covenant, which they call the covenant of grace. Prominent theologian Louis Burkhoff defines the covenant of grace as follows, quote, It's that gracious agreement between the offended God and the offending but elect sinner in which God promises salvation through faith in Jesus Christ and the sinner accepts this believingly, promising a life of faith and obedience, end quote. They believe all the biblical covenants are further expansions of this one unifying covenant of grace. It's basically the covenant of God's saving people by grace through faith. And that each biblical covenant more fully reveals the mediator of the covenants, Christ, who's the one who fulfills them all in the end anyway. The covenant of grace is the only plan of salvation for mankind. Throughout all human history, people are only saved by means of this covenant of grace, which means all people who are saved become united in the one people of God whom they define as the church or true Israel. Now, not all agree, but some covenantalists believe in a third covenant, covenant of redemption. This covenant, they teach, is is needed to provide the foundation for this covenant of grace, which again, that's like the salvation covenant for mankind. They believe this covenant of redemption was made in eternity past between God the Father and God the Son, in, in essence. The Son agreed to become incarnate and provide atonement for man, redemption for man through his death on the cross. And the Father agreed to bestow great glory and honor upon the Son. So once again, just big picture, you turn to any page of your Bible, whatever you read, covenantists believe you're seeing an outworking of these two or three covenants. They they encapsulate all of God's redemptive work in this world, in world history. That's probably the shortest way possible to summarize, you know, the core tenets of covenant theology. I can include a brief historical note. Covenantalism as, as a theological system originated in the 16th and 17th centuries in Europe. While covenant terminology is not found among the early church fathers, they would contend that a lot of the thoughts 
can be found in the early church. It was later reformers who developed covenantalism into a full-fledged system, and it became ingrained in the famous Westminster Confession of Faith. It was brought to America by the Puritans. Today, covenant theology is essentially synonymous with traditionally reformed churches, especially, you know, know, basically uh, conservative Presbyterian churches. They'll almost always be uh, covenantal. All right, now let's go on to dispensationalism. This is another way of understanding salvation history. Dispensationalism sees a unified plan of salvation in Jesus from creation to the eternal kingdom, but emphasizes the different ways God administers that plan in different eras. And these eras are often referred to as dispensations, hence this is why it's called dispensational theology. It's from where it gets its name. The word dispensation comes from the Greek word oikonomia, and that refers to the, the stewardship of God's household. Dispensationalism then, it's like it views the world as God's house or household, which he administers differently in different eras of history. This comes from Ephesians 1.10, which says that the mystery of God's will is now made known to us with a view to an administration, oikonomia, suitable to the fullness of the times. In this present age or dispensation, they would teach, you know, God is dealing with man now most directly. Each dispensation is said to have different features. These are more than just errors of time, but ways in which God relates to man. And there's many different ways dispensationalists will, will number or identify these special time periods, these dispensations. I think all dispensationalists would at least agree on four uh, patriarchal dispensation how the nations related to God before the law of Moses, a mosaic dispensation, how the nations related to God through Israel as a mediator nation, an ecclesial dispensation, how the nations relate to God through the church, and then a Zionic dispensation, how the nations relate to God eternally. It's important to point out that these different dispensations, they're not different ways of salvation. Salvation is always by grace alone, through faith alone, in every age What differs is how God administers his rule and his plan in the world. Now, there's plenty of confusing things in these systems. What makes it extra confusing is believing in dispensations does not make you a dispensationalist. Believing in covenants does not make you a covenantalist. In fact, all covenantalists believe in dispensations, at least two of them, the old and the new. In fact, dispensation as a term was used first in the Westminster Confession. What really separates the two in understanding redemptive history is that dispensationalists see a sharper distinction between the eras, most importantly, the old covenant era and the new covenant era. Covenantalism, meanwhile, sees every stage of history as just an outworking of the one covenant of grace. So they see much more continuity between the different eras, most importantly, the old covenant era, the new covenant era. Israel church dominates most of the Bible. And so practically speaking, really the the biggest practical difference between dispensationalism and covenantalism when it comes down to it, it's really just maintaining a distinction between Israel and the church. It's really kind of what it comes down to if you're simplifying things. Dispensationalists teach that the church is the spirit-filled people of the new covenant, which began after Christ's death, resurrection, ascension, the coming of the spirit in Acts chapter 2. That is when the church formally began. The church is not a a continuation of Israel, but it's it's a different entity than national Israel. Dispensationalists will keep Israel and the church distinct to varying degrees. All right, with that little brief explanation in mind, I can give you a note on their history as well. And as a system of theology, dispensationalism came later. It's formed in the 1800s. Like covenantalists, dispensationalists will argue that, you know, there are elements of their theology in the early church fathers, but it's Genesis as a formal system. It's usually traced to the Plymouth Brethren movement in the UK and uh, the US. Covenant theology is rooted in tradition, right? They've got the Westminster Confession, and so it became entrenched in Presbyterian Reformed churches. But really, throughout the 18 and 1900s, 
Dispensationalism took America, especially by storm, spread like wildfire. And given the prominence of America in global missions, a dispensationalism unseated covenantalism as the predominant view. All right, well, it's, it's a tall order to try and concisely explain these two systems, let alone all their differences. But I, w- I would just have you focus on the big picture. These are two different ways of understanding God's unfolding plans and purposes for man in the world. Their, their biggest practical difference comes down to the amount of you know, continuity or discontinuity between the Old Covenant era, the New Covenant era, and their peoples, Israel and the church. At this point, to give some sort of like detailed critique of the systems would take a very long time, wouldn't fully be right. We haven't fully explained them. It's kind of beyond the scope of this Q&A. I can just briefly share a, a little bit of a personal perspective. There's much I appreciate in covenantalism, is from their emphasis on God's grace to the sovereignty of God. And I, I find myself agreeing with many of their conclusions. But I guess I've, I've never had eyes to see these three extra covenants in the white spaces of Scripture. I've read the countless articles of Ligon Duncan and R.C. Sproul trying to find it. They make their case for the covenant of works, covenant of grace. And I get all the inferences they're making. I've just personally never found it compelling. And I think there's a real problem with how they use the term covenant. Seeing how the, these terms, covenant of works, covenant of grace, covenant of redemption, they're never mentioned in Scripture. Now, to this, they would argue like, hey, the word Trinity is never mentioned in the Bible. That's just, it's a good term, though, for describing this very biblical thing in Scripture, and that's fully true. But the difference is the term covenant is in Scripture. They're taking a biblical term, but they're using it in a form the Scripture never uses. And covenant, the word covenant is a very specific, important biblical concept found all over the Bible. It's, it's a huge deal when it comes to God's redemptive plan. But covenantalists have taken this critical term and then applied it in a way Scripture never does. That's troubling, to me at least. You know, the Abrahamic, the Davidic, the New Covenants. That right there, that is the explicit biblical focus of God's redemptive plan. Let's, just, let's go there. But to hijack the term covenant and apply it in ways Scripture never does, I mean, to me it's just kind of like you're asking for some confusion. Why not just stick with the biblical covenants? It's what God has revealed. It's what he has told us. Seems like it's enough. But that leads to another problem. Namely, I don't agree with how they handle the actual biblical covenants. The Abrahamic covenant, Mosaic, Palestinian, Davidic, New Covenants, the main covenants of Scripture. They're all multifaceted. They're revealing God's promises in many different ways. Some physical, some spiritual. Some to Israel, some to the nations. But all these promises and their reference, they, they kind of get flattened in the covenant of grace. All the biblical covenants can become really one-dimensional promises of blessing for the church. And I, I would disagree with that. Like I said, I do agree with much of what covenantalists teach about God's sovereign plan overall for the world. I'm just not convinced by these extra biblical covenants. Certainly not to the degree of making these my grid for interpreting the whole Bible, which is what it becomes. And to be fair, I have the same problem with dispensationalism as a system. A lot of good dispensational teaching consists of just good basic observations of Scripture. Right? Like here are different ways that God relates to the Jews under Moses than to the patriarchs. Yes, that's good. We, We understand that. But do I make this whole notion of dispensations and their special characteristics my main grid for interpreting the whole Bible. I'm wary of both of these systems when they turn into systems of understanding the whole Bible. And also, I I really just gave you a very basic introduction to dispensationalism. There's a lot more, but especially with classical dispensationalism, its earliest form, it has some truly aberrant views, like the existence of two new covenants, one for Israel, one for the church. They take that discontinuity too far. And there's plenty to reject there. Both of these systems have evolved much over the years. I find, you know, many errors in the the early iterations of dispensationalism. That being said, there are are two fundamental conclusions all dispensationalists will reach. That would be premillennialism and maintaining some distinction between Israel and the church. 
both of which I'm personally 100% convinced of, so that would put me in their camp. In general, though, I, I like to remind people that this is a debate between believers. There really are godly men and women on both sides of this. You wouldn't always know that if you pay attention to a lot of the, the mudslinging that occurs when people get into end times debates. And mischaracterization is, is everywhere, but I would, I would strongly caution you against that just to you know, refuse the immaturity of, of tribalism. I'm not saying don't have firm convictions and interpretations of Scripture. You must. I'm just saying I don't blindly rush into some camp and plant your flag because some you know, Christian influencer got a hold of you. You are to be Bereans in more ways than ones. I mean, it's, it's the church you're at. You're to spend time studying the Scriptures yourselves deeply, widely on these issues. It's something we all must do. Now, I could finish up here because we can't really come close to being exhaustive on this question, but my goal is to be helpful to the church. And where else are you going to have teaching on questions like this? Like only in a Q&A sermon, pretty much, right? But I think there's one more way to help here. Because in, in all my years of study on this issue, I think I can help you cut to the heart of the debate. Like, what's the real dividing line between these systems? Most people, they get lost in red herrings and trivial matters, or they just devolve into mudslinging and ad hominem attacks, which is all nonsense. But the real dividing line, which I alluded to, is between Israel and the church. How do you understand the people of the old covenant, Israel? How do you understand the people of the new covenant, the church? How do they relate to one another? What's their relationship? Your answer here will will greatly affect what you believe about the future. Are Israel and the church kept distinct such that there remains a future for national Israel? Or is there no future for national Israel and God's plan? The church is true Israel and has inherited all of Israel's promises. Which is it? This is the issue that, that fundamentally separates covenantalists and dispensationalists. But I think I can help you even more. I can tell you why these two systems arrive at their different conclusions on Israel and the church. Why do they view Israel and the church differently? The answer here comes down to hermeneutics or how you study the Bible. More specifically, it's something you probably never heard of before. Something called testament priority. Testament priority. And so I want to quickly here pop the hood and expose you to something you've probably never heard of before, but testament priority. It's not a question of which testament is more important or more inspired. And look, in the sense, I think we all cherish the New Testament more because like, that's where we get the fuller revelation of God, his son, his spirit. I mean, we are the church. This is the revelation directly meant for us. So, of course, we're going to favor the New Testament in a sense. Although all God's word is inspired and uh, fully practical for a Christian life. But no, we're talking about how we interpret the Bible. And so here's the question. Do you believe the Old Testament can be rightly understood on its own? Or do you believe the New Testament is required to arrive at a true understanding of the Old Testament? This is the difference between Old Testament priority and New Testament priority. And covenantalists believe in New Testament priority. The Old Testament, it's all shadows and types. Only through the lens of the New Testament can you see the Old Testament rightly. The New Testament has the priority, meaning that it might redefine or reinterpret Old Testament promises, or at the very least reveal the the true intended recipients of those promises, namely the church. You know, in all other areas, really covenantalists, and dispensationalists. They, they interpret the Bible the same way. They have the same hermeneutics. That word just means the, the method by which we interpret the Bible. They both employ what's called a, a literal, historical, grammatical hermeneutic. And so they arrive at the same conclusions on pretty much all the Old Testament otherwise. But when it comes to prophecy or promises to Israel, covenantalists move outside the literal, historical, grammatical method of interpreting the Bible and and we'll have spiritual conclusions. Critics would say that they're spiritualizing the scriptures. But to be fair to covenantalists, they would argue that they're just treating the Old Testament 
prophets and prophecy like the New Testament apostles do. They're just doing what the apostles do to the Old Testament. But this is New Testament priority. If you study this further, you find this compelling, well, it's going to lead you down the road to covenantal conclusions. Now, the other side of this is Old Testament priority, which is going to lead you down the road to dispensational conclusions. Dispensationalists believe that the New Testament expands and adds to our understanding of the Old Testament. However, they believe you can still approach the Old Testament by itself and come to a true understanding just from the Old Testament, almost as if you were that Old Testament Jew. And while you wouldn't know the fullness of God's plan, the New Testament certainly reveals the fullness of his plan, from the Old Testament by itself, you'd be on the right track. You can arrive at a true interpretation that you would not be fundamentally misled. Of course, dispensationalists expect the New Testament to shed light on the Old Testament. And the New Testament can even expand Old Testament promises. That's not a problem. But dispensationalists would say that the New Testament never overrides the original authorial intent of the Old Testament. The New Testament does not reinterpret the Old Testament so as to cancel out or change the original meaning, the meaning which the original audience would have understood. And that, was, that is determined by the ordinary literal, historical, grammatical method of interpreting the Bible. So really, this is the issue. How do you interpret the scriptures, Old Testament or New Testament priority? This has huge implications for how you handle the biblical covenants. I mean, with an Old Testament priority, you're going to take all those biblical covenants, Abrahamic, Davidic, New, at face value, and that's just going to lead you to the inevitable conclusion that there must be a future time where all these promises are fulfilled, a future time of Israel's restoration, because many of the promises have not been fulfilled as originally stated. So, well, there must be a time in the future when they will be. But with New Testament priority, the option opens up to take these promises spiritually, believing that that was what was intended, and therefore seeing no future fulfillment for Israel. Rather, all the promises of God are fulfilled in the church and in Christ. Well, there you go. That's, I think, enough. (laughs) The midterm will be in two weeks, and uh, we'll see you there. But if you find this to be uh, an area of further study, I hope this helps to avoid, you know, some dead ends or some frustration. Most people don't actually realize this, but with most of end times, which is a fascinating subject to many people, the differences really often come down to hermeneutics, how you study and interpret the Bible. Hopefully that helps you. Let's shift gears. This is definitely a Sunday of eclectic questions. So we're going to move on now to question two. Question two, does the Bible specify how we have different races if we all came from Adam and Eve? Does the Bible specify how we have different races if we all came from Adam and Eve? This is a good question. I think it's common enough as well. Look, you just look around the world, you see all different types of people with different physical characteristics, looking quite different from skin color to facial features. But it's been asked many times, you know, if we all, if we really did all descend from Adam and Eve, why would we look so different? Why would there be so many different races or ethnicities? Well, first, we can and should affirm that the Bible teaches we did all descend from Adam and Eve. Speaking of Adam, Acts 17.26 says that God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. Genesis 3.20, the man uh, called his wife Eve because she was the mother of all the living. And Romans 5, elsewhere, scripture is never in any doubt that we did all descend from Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve, and they populated this world as commanded, and then all humanity funneled through Noah and his sons, as they departed from the ark, were all descended from them as well. But really, there's one more significant event you need to keep in mind when you're talking about race, and that would be the Tower of Babel. And mankind before that was one people. God himself said they're one people. They're united in language. They weren't divided by things like nation or race. But there's a problem with that, namely that mankind at that time was united in his rebellion against God, united in sin. And so God judged. This is the Tower of Babel. God says, Genesis 11, verse 9, it says, The Lord confused 
the language of the whole earth. And from there, the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. And just think, no longer being able to understand one another, man divided and would clump together in language groups. And over time, these groups migrated over the earth. And that is how the Bible tells us of the origin of nations. You read Genesis 10, 11, you see the origin of nations leading to Israel, of course. Genesis 12 goes on to that one nation. Genesis 10, 11 are often called the table of nations after Babel, how the world divided through common language. So that's how the Bible explains the origin of nations or people groups, despite the fact that we all come from Adam and Eve, really goes back to Babel, not just Adam and Eve. Now, you add on top of this our understanding of genetics today, and it actually profoundly affirms the biblical picture. I think we see some of God's greatest glory in DNA, right? The building block of human life. Now, we now know that genes determine many aspects of our physical character and appearance, but we've got about 25,000 genes, so that there's a lot of variability possible within them. And then when you take like half of dad's DNA, you combine it with half of mom's DNA for the child, you can get a wide variety of outcomes and physical features in just one generation, children from the same parents. I think we're living proof because our third child, Eli, has almost jet black hair and very dark skin. He's like our little Pacific Islander. And then our fourth child, Asher, is very, very pale skin with like almost blonde hair. We're all wondering like, where did this come from? He's very Nordic, must be like my Swedish roots. A lot of variety possible. But just consider skin color as a perfect example. Everything would apply to all other physical characteristics that uh, make us different. But look, all humans actually have the same base skin color. Skin color variety comes down to the amount of pigment in your skin, which is determined by something called melanin. Right? Less melanin means you'll have lighter skin. More melanin means you'll have darker skin. And we found there are several genes that control melanin production. And so even within a single generation, the DNA of the parents has enough variation to provide a wide range of potential skin color for their children. Now, I want you to think about the original DNA of Adam and Eve. It would have been perfect, meaning free from any mutations that have accumulated ever since the fall. It also would have been complete meaning it contained all the variety possible that humans could ever see. And our DNA is that vast and complex to do that. Side note, this means, by the way, Adam and Eve were probably not white with blonde hair and blue eyes. Probably were the middle range of the outcomes we see today, which probably like a light brown. But their children could have had just a wide variety of physical appearance because their DNA contained all that, was, that, would, that ever could be expressed in humanity. But again, the big change happens not at creation, not at the flood, but at Babel. Humanity, according to the Bible, before Babel, was mixed, unified in all ways, not for the good, but it was, it was a very mixed gene pool. But as man divided by language and then geography, Scripture teaches, well, what, me, what that means is certain gene pools become isolated. And that is how you lose variety in DNA. Gene pools isolate, certain dominant genes take over and show themselves, variety is lost, and over time you get people groups who have certain defining characteristics. Gene pool isolation is the answer here. This is why we think of many Asians as having almond-shaped eyes, or many people from Africa having very dark skin. And really when you think about it, throughout most of world history, interracial marriage has been almost non-existent. Right? Since Babel, these people groups who divided and clumped together and formed characteristics from, from history, we know like they did not mix often. They stayed quite isolated and separate for most of human history. And so, really, just as Scripture points to Babel as the source of nations or people groups, so you could call it the source of races. Scripture, genetics would align. This, that's a perfectly, perfect explanation for why we see the diversity we see today. No, I do feel compelled to add, though, that as Christians, we would challenge the world's definition of race. That term race has been used by the world to divide mankind by its various physical characteristics for a long time. This is why when you fill out your U.S. census, you've got to mark your race, whether you're Caucasian or black or Asian or Hispanic or so on. 
But I think as Christians, we would, in a sense, reject that understanding of race. Instead, contending biblically that there's only one race, the human race, the race of Adam. Race is a construct that has been used to divide man unnecessarily for a long time. There's no no real need to divide humans along these lines, certainly not biblically. And even worse, the past 200 years with evolutionary theory, as you know, some have believed that certain races are genetically superior to other races. They're higher up on the evolutionary ladder, and it's been used for a lot of true evil. But no, what does scripture teach? We're all of the race of Adam. Again, Acts 17, 26, God made from one man, or the old King James reads, one blood, every nation of mankind. The whole race of man is dead in sin, rebelling against God, but that's why God sent a second Adam, Christ Jesus, who became man of our race, not the race of angels, the race of man. He became a, a man to save us. 1 Corinthians 15, 45 says, so also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a life-giving soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Really, Christians should be the least racist people on the planet because we understand that all humanity is one in Adam. All the church is one in Christ. Now, of course, we know people still carry their sinful prejudices, judging people based on physical traits. But at least you should know there's no biblical basis for doing so refuse to show such partiality. Instead, we in the church should be giving glory to God for all the diversity and variety we see. Because you know what it means? It just reflects just the creativity and the majesty of the creator who programmed that all in there in the most complex thing we've ever known called DNA. All right, let's go on to question number three. These have all been longer questions, so this will be the last one for today. Question three. I'm sure you're, you're not ready for this question. <laughs> what is the biblical perspective on the efforts of some to colonize Mars and make humans an interplanetary species? What is the biblical perspective on the efforts of some to colonize Mars and make humans an interplanetary species? Follow-up, is this rebellion against God's will for man to have dominion over the earth? That is definitely the most unique and unexpected question I received. We had to, had to choose it. But listen, it, this is actually a very valid question of Christian ethics, of how we apply scripture and biblical worldview to issues of life that the Bible doesn't mention. And I'll tell you what, this, this whole area, this notion of Christians leaving earth, believe it or not, you're going to have to face this area of Christian ethics pretty soon. So this is not like a just for fun question. This is a legitimate Christian ethics question about the frontier of space and what that means for humanity. It's fascinating, but let's see if we can apply a biblical worldview to it. Now, this question came with a lot of background, so I'll share that with you. Namely, it has in the background the ambitions, the people driving this movement of not just Elon Musk, but people like him who want to see millions of people living in space, living on Mars in the next 50, 100 years or so. Should Christians support or oppose such efforts for us to now like live in space? You might ask, you know, like, why is this even a question? What's the big deal here? We're already in orbit. We've got people living in orbit. Right? Space tourism is around the corner. And there's no like, biblical opposition to that. So what's the big deal of just going a little bit further out to the moon or to Mars? But really, the background of this question is the motivation that the driving forces have in, in colonizing Mars right now, as it is right now. What's the motivation for these, these drivers of getting us to live in space? It would be the survival of the human species, and more specifically, the preservation of our evolutionary branch. They would say, as humans, the highest evolved being, we need to preserve our evolutionary branch from extinction. Stephen Hawking said humanity must abandon Earth or face extinction. It's like we're on a deserted island, we're starving, we've we got to get off. Elon Musk, in turn, sees Mars more like a backup plan. Like, you, you back up your computer, we need redundancy. You know, if nukes or an asteroid could wipe out all human life on Earth, we need a backup for the sake of our species. And colonizing space mitigates the risk are exposed to the extinction of our species. So from this perspective here, if, if this were our sole reason behind colonizing Mars or space, 
well, it's kind of obvious, but we as Christians would not support it because you know, scripture promises us otherwise. The world fears several doomsday scenarios. They've captured public imagination, you know, virus outbreaks, disasters, climate change, an asteroid strike, nuclear war. But biblically, we, we do not fear the extinction of the human race, human species. This does not mean we ignore threats to human life. This doesn't mean there can't be widespread calamity. But we, we don't fear the world's picture of doomsday or extinction. And that's because God has told us otherwise. And once upon a time, there was a real extinction event called the flood. And God preserved only eight people. But afterward, do you remember what he promised? Genesis 9-11 God said, I establish my covenant with you, and all flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood. Neither shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. Now, there is a biblical picture of doomsday, and it will be caused by man, but not in the way the world thinks. It is caused by man's sin, which invites God's wrath. God has allowed his good creation to be spoiled by sin and man's rebellion, but not forever. And right now, we know he's being extremely patient with man's rebellion. But a day will come when he will, he will judge the world again. Like he promised, not with water, he will use fire. Like scripture tells us the end of the story. Second Peter, after referencing when God destroyed the world with the flood, what does Second Peter 3, 7 say? He says, but by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Verse 10 says that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. After that, he says in verse 13, God will make a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Right now, this creation is subjected to futility. It was cursed along with man. Romans 8.21 personifies creation as if it is longing for its own redemption, its own remaking. That will happen when Christ returns and then eventually remakes the world. This world will be restored to its former glory and beyond. But all this goes to say that, you know, biblically, we, we do not fear the world being totally destroyed, humanity being totally wiped out, at least not before God does it, not before God's judgment. It's going to happen. It's just that God will be the one doing it in an unmistakable way at the end. And so, no, Christians do not need to support any efforts to save humanity in space. If that's your reason, to us, it's futile. And really, furthermore, as many have argued, like just the vast amount of resources it would take to colonize Mars, probably spend that elsewhere. I mean, we've got to be talking trillions and trillions of dollars. And I think it'd be far better to use all that money to help you know, people who are alive today on Earth and all the problems of Earth. How much disease and poverty could be eradicated if we applied ourselves to Earth's problems instead. Now, all that being said, there's still a little, one more question here, though, because it's still fair to ask, okay, we get that, we get that motivation, we don't care about that, but does this make space exploration and colonization immoral from a Christian perspective? We wouldn't support it for survival reasons, but you'd be hard-pressed to call this unethical. Look, I'll tell you again, there really is a huge frontier of Christian ethics coming up as it relates to man's relationship with technology and everything coming in the future, there's going to be a lot of questions that need to be asked and answered that have never been asked before in human history. The Bible doesn't say anything about them. Regarding space, indeed, Scripture is just silent on this issue. It doesn't say anything. We're not told to explore other words, worlds. Rather, we're also not forbidden from doing so. So you just have to go with what has been revealed. What do we have to go by? And a good place to start is our creation mandate from the beginning. Genesis 1.28, what did God tell mankind at the beginning to do? Genesis 1.28, God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Man was given dominion over the earth. 
the same ground Adam was taken from, he's told to subdue. Man was not given explicit dominion over the sun, moon, stars, planets, but the earth. Man was told to fill it, subdue it, which means use its resources in various ways to lead to human flourishing. It's pretty obvious that God intended humanity to focus on earth. This is the only place we know of conducive to life, like where human life can survive. That should tell you something as well about where God intends us to go. Now, in addition, we know a Savior has come, Christ the Lord. Luke 2.14 says he came to bring peace on earth. He commands us to take his gospel to the ends of the earth, Acts 1.8. And so, again, it's, it's pretty obvious, but there's, there's a pretty big obvious or pretty big uh, emphasis to the church's mandate and mission on earth. As Christians especially, at the very least, we should prioritize our time, our resources to spreading the gospel, helping others here on earth as we steward the planet. That's our creation mandate. But at the same time, you could argue that man's dominion doesn't end at the edge of earth's atmosphere. Now, though this is biblical poetry, consider Psalm chapter 8, Psalm 8, Verses 3 and 4, the psalmist says, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him, and the son of man that you care for him? But then it says in verse 6, You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet. There's no doubt that earth has been given to man by God as our primary domain. Again, it's the only place that can sustain human life that, that doesn't characterize Mars. However, man has already used his dominion over the earth to explore and survive in hostile environments, like under the sea, like in orbit. You could say that is an extension of our dominion over earth as we're taking earth's resources and using them in new creative ways to go beyond. It is from this angle that some Christians have argued we, we need to go to space, Some have stated that space, with just its unlimited resources from planets to asteroids, is the best way to eliminate human poverty. Just the amount of raw materials and wealth that can be found in space could drastically improve the human condition. And so they say we must exert our dominion over it. I don't know if that is true or not, but I think we can kind of settle on this. At the end of the day, colonizing space is a very intriguing question, one that just Scripture is silent on. You can, I think, probably tenuously extrapolate man's dominion over the earth to other planets. There's certain motives we would have to reject. But you'd be hard-pressed to say living in space is unethical just by itself. But given God's silence on this issue, I, I think the revelation found in God's providence can be taken into account here. In other words, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if God's providence doesn't allow us to colonize Mars. And a man just might be visited with the Tower of Babel 2.0. <laughs> just in Scripture, God's plans for the end of this age regarding man seem to have to do with only Earth. And then new heavens and new Earth, there's no telling what, what that holds. But until then, it seems like God will finish his plans with man on Earth first. But at the same time, God's providence just might allow it. Humans are already living in orbit. They might start living on the moon or Mars, even in our lifetime. Christians would not have to fear that in principle. Some have joked, although I wonder how joking they are, that it just says the Puritans and other Christian refugees found solace and, and a new life in the new world, that maybe Mars becomes the next place for persecuted and fleeing Christians. That would be pretty wild. Come what may, though, I think wherever we as Christians go, we take the gospel with us. Because we know one thing, that Christ is Lord, not just of the earth. That is a good reminder here, that he's Lord of all. He's Lord of lords. Interesting how Colossians 1.16 tells us Christ is the one who made all things. It wasn't just talking about the earth. Colossians 1.16, for by him, Christ, all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth. And he's the one who has redeemed all things. And it wasn't just talking about the earth. Colossians 1.20, through Jesus, God reconciled all things to himself. 
having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Like we know we're here to represent Christ and his lordship wherever we go. Uh, this, it's, it's fascinating, but I think it was Armstrong who went to the moon, secretly took communion while he was there and uh, read scripture from orbit. It's a fitting thought for us to end on that we serve a cosmic Lord. He's not just Lord of Earth. He's Lord of this universe. God is the God of the universe. What the vastness of space holds for us, likely won't know until the kingdom. But you can be sure that every molecule you find will declare the glory of God. And everything that exists will bow the knee to Jesus because he is Lord overall. Philippians 2, 9 through 11 it says, for this reason also God highly exalted him, Christ, and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We received a lot of biblical instruction this morning, just applying the scriptures and a biblical worldview to a host of pretty random but good questions It's appropriate, though, because we know God's word applies to all of life. We need to seek it and study it and apply it to all of life. As we close, though, I do want us to remember, as the scriptures teach, what is the goal of all of our instruction? It is love from a pure heart. We do all this never just to be puffed up, but really as a means to know Christ our Lord, to follow Christ as our Lord, to walk in love and walk rightly before him. So let us take this, all the instruction we receive, and turn it into Uh, right living and worship. Well, that'll do it for this morning. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we we praise you. Anytime we open your word and and search it, we see you, we see your glory revealed, what you have uh, given to us, all that we need for life and godliness. And though your, your word has not been exhaustive in the sense of telling us about every possibility of life, everything we might encounter, even in a modern world, we know it's still sufficient. Everything we need for life and godliness, for instruction, for reproof, for how we ought to live, how to know you, you've given us everything. And you've also given us wisdom. Your word is a treasure trove of wisdom. The mind of Christ has been given to us, sufficient for us to apply a biblical worldview to all of life. I just pray we're convicted as we think of these questions and their answers that we're most deeply convicted that we need your word. We need to know it, study it, search it, and, and mine its wisdom. It's there. You, you beckon us to come and take its wisdom and its word and apply it to life. So may we do that. May we not be negligent or careless with our questions, but a type of people who want to know you and your word that we might live rightly before you. We do this to the glory of our Savior Christ, who has died for us, who has rose for us, will return for us, will exert his lordship over all things. And we, we long to be there. Until then, may we walk rightly in your word. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.